0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Antibuddies. This is our 13th episode in the Immunology 101 series, which is a segment where we teach the fundamentals of immunology. Joining me today is Jatin from the University of Florida. Hi. Hello. This is part two of, I mean, probably three episodes on innate immunity. And who knows? We might come back and do even more after that. But if you didn't listen to last week's episode, go and do that right now. So, uh, yeah,
1: and say how, how's it going? Well, it's good. You know what? Today, I, I understood that my joke was bad last time. So I have thought very hard and I have come up with something better this time.
0: Okay, okay, hit me with it.
1: Okay. Why did the innate immunologist pet a lot of cats? Uh, why did the innate immunologist pet a lot of cats? Because those cats went purr. Oh, like
0: pattern recognition receptor. Yeah, isn't it funny? (laughs) I I don't know I I think you need to stop making these jokes
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay I'm really sorry for this but yeah keeping jokes aside Natalie can you review what we talked about in our last episode
0: okay yeah um well we talked about anatomical barriers that are the first layer of defense for your body so this includes your epithelial barriers as well as some chemical barriers We also talked about something called pattern recognition receptors with a deep dive into toll-like receptor signaling that depends on the Mighty88 adapter protein. Uh, While talking about this pathway, we also discussed the players that help in signaling, like the receptor, the adapter, scaffolds, and kinases. Uh, Right here, before we keep going on, I would like to make a slight correction to last episode. Um, We said that TRAF6 is a scaffold protein in the last episode, which is is true, but it's more than that. Um, Apart from just recruiting other proteins and giving them a place to hang out, uh, TRAF6 does have an enzymatic role. Um, It's an E3 ubiquitin ligase and therefore can attach ubiquitin chains to its substrates to relay a signal. So technically, I guess it's not like just a true scaffold that just hangs out and doesn't have an enzymatic activity. But, I mean, it does play this important role of recruiting many other proteins for signaling propagation. So uh, I guess with that out of the way, our our little correction du jour, uh, let's continue talking about innate immunity. Today, we are going to resume our discussion and go a little bit into the TRIF signaling pathway, which is again, uh, downstream of toll-like receptor signaling. But this one is totally independent of Mighty88.
1: Yeah, I remember we started with the question, how do TLRs relay signals differently? So the Mighty88 and the TRIF-mediated pathways answer that question to some extent as you were talking. And then we started with the Mighty88. So I think it's time that we discuss the TRIF pathway.
0: Yeah. So um, we're going to talk about TRIF, which stands for TER domain containing adapter inducing interferon beta factor. Um, and, And then even that has like, two different acronyms in it, like TER is is for the toll-like receptor, right? Um, except it's IL-1 receptor-like, whatever. Anyway, it's a mouthful. So can you guess from that name what it might do?
1: You said TER domain-containing adapter inducing interferon beta factor. So it induces interferon beta factor. <laughs> is that what Yeah!
0: Yeah, it does. You're exactly right. Um, so, a typical TLR that utilizes the TRIF pathway is TLR3. So, that's the one that recognizes double stranded RNA. So, uh, let's use that as an example when we explain this pathway. Let's say your TLR3 senses some dsRNA in the endosome. It's coming from a virus that's infected your cell. So, it's going to dimerize with another TLR3. That's when they come close together, two of them. And this is when TRIF. Which is the adapter protein that hangs onto the the kind of inside of the hook, goes and associates with this dimer. Then Trif is going to interact with some proteins who will recruit a protein called TRAF3, which has similar ubiquitinating uh, activity like TRAF6, and of course also recruits other proteins to form a signaling hub. Some of these proteins that TRAF3 recruits are kinases. Two important kinases that are recruited to TRAF3 are. TBK1, aka Tank Binding Kinase, and IKK epsilon, aka Inhibitor of kappa B Kinase epsilon. Or what's what's that E in Greek? I, I think, think it's epsilon. E. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> when we were talking about the mighty 88 pathway, we mentioned that IKK eventually activates the NF kappa B pathway. However, uh, here's a different type of Ika, the IKK the epsilon type, which uh, actually doesn't activate NF kappa B at all
1: well if it did it would be the same pathway right because so far we have had so many similarities the dimerization the adapter molecule then the involvement of a trap that is somewhat of a a scaffold so i did guess that there would be something different with this ikk um can you tell us more about what it does
0: yeah yeah so like i was saying this ikk epsilon along with its buddy tbk1 that has been recruited to the TRAF3 will go ahead and phosphorylate a very important transcription factor called IRF3 or interferon regulatory factor 3. Uh, before we proceed, can you help me recall what TRIF stood for?
1: Um, It was tier domain containing adapter inducing interferon beta factor.
0: Yeah, so I wanted you to say that interferon beta factor because uh like we talked about before that is where this pathway is ultimately leading to so irf3 um the one that got phosphorylated just now by ikk epsilon and tbk which dimerized with uh, will all dimerize with another phosphorylated irf3 and that whole complex will go into the nucleus so it can guide the transcription of a bunch of antiviral genes including interferon beta which is the wholly antiviral protein cell um our cells are pretty much always depending on for dealing with viruses. Interferon beta is a very, very potent cytokine that can block viral replication inside the cells.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Also coming back to that IKK, imagine that just last episode we said, hey, IKK means inhibitor of Kappa B kinase. So- that's what it does. And now we're saying, no, that's not what this one does. <laughs> it's, it's, it's already so confusing because I'm guessing that the way they named this epsilon compared to the alpha and beta for the other IKK is because it looks like that enzyme. Maybe shares hemology, but turns out it does something completely different. But the name sticks. So if you were trying to predict its function from the name, now you would be left confused. And that's why a lot of people hate immunology. Right here. Yeah, w-
0: we're pretty bad at naming stuff. I'll give us. I'll give us that. Yeah, uh,
1: <laughs> keep the name similar because it's homologous, or or you want to keep a different name because it has a different function. Yeah, it's just all that confusion. But anyway, since the initial stimulation in this pathway of TLR three that you're giving as an example was in the form of a double stranded DNA, the or double stranded RNA. I'm sorry, uh, the signal is routed such that and antiviral responses elicited. So yeah, it does make sense.
0: Yeah, exactly. The cell knows what kinds of responses are needed based on the type of TLR that's initially triggered. In this way, the myd 88 and TRIF dependent responses are unique, but they, they still fo- follow common themes. Let's quickly review the players in the pathway. The receptor is TLR3. The adapter is TRIF. There is somewhat of a scaffolding protein, TRAF3, that brings in other players. Um, Oh, also, TRAF3 does have ubiquinating activity, and it's pretty important for the signaling. Um, Then on top of that, there's an additional bunch of crosstalk between Mighty88 and TRIF signaling. So now there are cell-specific alterations to the pathways, which when you combine them, you get tons of diversity into how this signal can flow forward.
1: Yeah, this is truly complicated. And I have immense respect for all those people who study cell signaling. Uh, don't, don't you
0: study cell signaling, Mr. Hey, Stat Guy?
1: <laughs> no, no one acknowledges the R we cell signaling people. So sometimes I just have to do it myself.
0: Oh, fair enough. Okay. Uh, before we're moving on to the next section, let me provide a big picture view here. So TLRs that sense bacteria parts initiate an antimicrobial response through the mighty 88 pathway whereas a TLR sensing viral parts will initiate an antiviral response through the TRIF pathway. So why don't you tell us about other types of pattern recognition receptors, Jatin?
1: Sure, and apart from toll-like receptors, there are other types of pattern recognition receptors too. Let's talk about a type of PRR called C-type lectin receptor or CLR. These guys bind carbohydrate groups that might be found on fungi, bacteria, viruses, parasites, and even some allergens like peanuts. Organisms like plants, bacteria, they have a very specific way of glycosylating or adding sugars onto the proteins of their, uh, on the cell surface sometimes. So using these patterns is a great way to differentiate self from non-self. You'll find CLRs on monocytes, macrophages, dendritic cells, neutrophils, B cells, and T cells, and all the CLRs recognize foreign sugar patterns to alarm the immune system. Humans have at least 15 different CLRs, each recognizing specific sugars. Again, just like TLRs, CLRs can signal to activate the right transcription factor. In fact, if there is a receptor, it must relay its signal whatever signal to the nucleus through some transcription factor so let's take an example of a clr called dectin1 it's spelled as d-e-c-t-i-n-1 and dectin1 binds sugars off of let's say a fungus and then forms a dimer just like the tlrs Then it will signal through its intracellular domain to activate a series of enzymes, adapters, scaffolds to relay the signal from the cell surface to the nucleus. Just to keep it one pathway per episode, we will skip the details here. But the end game of CLR activation is just like TLRs, that it's going to induce inflammation. In this case, since the signal is coming from a fungal pathogen, this inflammation can lead to enhanced phagocytosis of the set fungus and production of reactive oxygen species to kill off the pathogen. That's
0: that's pretty hardcore, yeah.
1: (laughs) yeah, that is, that is. And now you have a whole class of uh, pattern recognition receptors just dedicated for sugar recognition, so I feel that is pretty cool.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
1: Now moving on to the next one. So far, we have talked about dealing with extracellular bacteria in the case of, let's say, TLR4, fungus in this example of Dectin-1, and intracellular viruses in your example of TLR3. But what about cytosolic pathogens like bacteria, intracellular bacteria? Here enters another class of PRRs called nod-like receptors, which have, which, is actually acronym for two different versions, whichever one you want to go with. One is nod-like receptors, which is the easier one, and another acronym, nu- nucleotide oligomerization domain, n- leucine-rich repeat-containing receptor. That's a lot. Let's just call it TL- NLRs <laughs> for today. Uh, NLRs look for DAMs and PAMs in the cytosol. Humans have 23 of these. And mice have 34. We can group them based on their structure. For example, uh, there is a type of NLR called NLRCs, which have a kind of cast based recruitment domain, also called cards. Then there are NLRBs, which have a particular protein domain, just I'm not going to name it just to keep it simple. And there are NLRPs, which have a pyrin domain. So, overall, for some NLR genes, Actually, we don't even know what they do. So, this is a pretty much an active area of research. Um, not to go too much in detail about NLRs, but still covering a little bit, I'm going to talk about two iconic sets of NLRs NOD1 and NOD2. These bind the breakdown products of bacterial cell wall peptidoglycans when either a cytosolic or endocytosed bacteria enters into the cell. Well, endocytose bacteria, so it has to be in the cell. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. Nods hang out on membranes of endosomes. And they catch things transmigrating across the membrane. When the proper BAMP binds to the right nod, the nod binds to, well, a kinase called RIP2, R-I-P-2, which brings in the TAC1 and friends complex, initiating the MAPK and NF-kappa-B pathways.
0: Hey! We covered that pathway where TAC1 activates NF Kappa B in the last episode.
1: Yes, and TAC1 is also a MAP3K, so it also activates the MAP kinase pathway, which is pretty cool that you get this one kinase activated, and now it starts doing that phone tree thing you were talking about. Okay, we did, yes, we did talk about these and the here the end result is slightly similar to the Mighty 88 dependent pathway. If we were to simplify everything, but of course there are some unique things that are achieved by NOD activation that are beyond the scope of this podcast or especially this episode. Anyway, talking about RIP2, RIP2 can also activate TRAF3 to phosphorylate IRF3 to produce type 1 interferons like interferon beta.
0: So this molecule can do pretty similar things to both the MyD8 and Trif dependent pathway.
1: Yes, so you can see that it has from two different players, it is achieving similar things as the MyD8 and Trif3. And we're going to see this theme of redundancy a lot in the world of cell signaling. And many pathways are common between different receptors with very slight variations. Some NLRs can form into even larger complexes. For instance, NLRP3, can work with caspases, caspases is their kind of proteases that break down other proteins to initiate death of the cell, let's say a macrophage, that the threat was first sensed in to release a lot of inflammatory cytokines and basically the cell is going to signal to the neighbors that something's wrong. Check it out here. So imagine a big bundle of NLRs and these caspin passive molecules looking like a big bouquet of death. It can be formed <laughs> in response to all sorts of things from uh, response to glucose, urea, urea crystals, um, ATP, UV radiation and asbestos. And th- some of these are bacterial derived parts which can be which can induce the formation of this uh, this giant molecule we call uh, macromolecule we call inflammasome and it's pretty hot area of research right now we could have a whole episode talking about the activation of inflammasome and the events around it
0: wow that that's amazing maybe in the future we could invite a guest who works on nlr's and uh you know maybe then we could talk in detail about inflammasomes
1: yeah that's a good plan uh natalie what other types of errs do we have
0: uh Great question. Uh, Next, we have the AIM-2-like receptors, or ALRs. So they hang out in the cytosol and bind DNA from bacteria and viruses. Uh, AIM-2, which is the namesake, but there are plenty of other proteins that are like it, binds double-stranded DNA to produce an antiviral response. But there's more than just that. There's also RLRs. So these are your retinoic acid-inducible gene-1-like receptors, or RLRs, and these are soluble PRRs that reside in the cytosol of many cell types, where they play critical roles as sensors of viral infection. The three known RLRs are RIG1, MDA5, and LGB2 which are, sorry, RIG-I, which are the cytoplasmic viral RNA sensors made up of RNA helicases that recognize double-stranded RNAs and trigger signals to induce antiviral responses, including the type 1 interferon uh, production. These receptors appear to distinguish viral from cellular RNA by their particular structural features that are not shared by normal cellular RNA, such as double-stranded regions of the RNA. That doesn't happen in our cells. Um, virus-specific sequence motifs, and in the case of RIG-I, a 5'-triphosphate modification that arises during uh, a 5'-triphosphate modification that arises during viral RNA synthesis and processing. So, it's looking for specific modifications on the RNA that make it specific to a virus or r RIG-I also signals um, down to eventually convert um, IRF3. Um, which is the transcription factor for interferons. So, a recent published work shows that the transfection of total RNAs extracted from SARS-CoV-2 infected cells into epithelial cells induced many cytokines, including interferon beta. However, the cytokine expression was reduced by the knockout of either RIG-I or MDA5, suggesting that both proteins are required for an appropriate innate immune response to,
1: you know, SARS-CoV-2, our COVID friend. Hey, thanks for sharing this this result. This is a real-world example of why these pattern recognition receptors are so important. I remember this episode with Dr. Shiv Pillay uh, when we discussed about his paper about COVID and germinal centers. He said that COVID is a disease of a failed innate immune response. And normally, our innate immunity is good enough to deal with all these pathogens.
0: True, I mean, it's indeed capable, which, Brings me to the last PRR we're going to talk about today. This is the C-Gas Sting pathway. So the immune system uses C-Gas Sting, which stands for cyclic GMP-AMP synthase, stimulator of interferon genes, signaling pathway to detect the presence of cytosolic DNA.
1: But don't we have DNA in the cytosol normally? No,
0: no, no, no. Most of our DNA should be in the nucleus. So if you have cytosolic DNA, that's a sign of either damage to the host or invasion by a bad guy. So the primary function of this pathway is in host defense, but new studies have established a link between this pathway and the development of a variety of inflammatory conditions um, and thus inappropriate responses to self-DNA have to be suppressed to prevent detrimental effects on the host. This is actually um, people who have lupus have uh, an inappropriate reaction to self-DNA, among other things. And that's why, you know, they're not supposed to go out in the sun because they'll get all these horrible rashes. And, uh, you know, they have to protect themselves because they can have an inappropriate response to the DNA damage that accrues from like UV rays.
1: And didn't you say just now that rig or some other pattern recognition receptor also uh, gets el- excited by UV rays, right? That could also...
0: Oh, the inflammasome. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah.
1: Yes.
0: Dude, the inflammasome is also why we get gout from urea crystals. So it's just, it's a mess. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, normally DNA from various sources can enter the cytosol and engage in the C-gas sting pathway where uh, DNA binding activates protein called C-gas to generate the second messenger cyclic GMP AMB or uh, C-GAMP, which binds to the endoplasmic reticulum localized adapter receptor, uh, uh, sorry, the adapter protein sting. It's not a receptor. Upon activation, Sting translocates from the ER into the Golgi, where it recruits kinases such as our favorite TBK1 and IKK epsilon. And I bet you can guess what happens after that.
1: Hey, TBK1 and IKK epsilon. That's from the trif dependent pathway that the TLR3 takes.
0: Yeah, so just like the trif dependent pathway, the end result is antiviral products like interferon beta. You wanna know something cool about these PRRs?
1: Yes, tell me.
0: Apart from fighting pathogens, they're actually super important for fighting cancers. Uh, Typically, cancer cells try to suppress inflammation so that they can evade the immune response. So here, triggering the PRRs can be really beneficial. A recent study showed that they could literally cure a particular model of breast cancer in mice by injecting them with a macrophage activating factor and cGAMP, which is a secondary messenger that activates sting.
1: That is crazy. We have cancer therapeutics right now, emerging from both the innate and the adaptive side. Yeah. Meanwhile, I do have a question. I noticed that there are many of these PRR pathways that do the exact same thing. As in, we showed that some of these are converging at Mighty88, some of these are converging at TRTRIF, or some have a completely different pathway, but eventually, like say, Interfront Beta production, that's a common theme in some of these pathways. What's the point of having such variety if they're all doing the same thing?
0: Um, well, I have a couple answers to that. Uh, first, there are still minor differences in the pathways. So, like, they could change the signaling route they take, or they can elicit the antiviral response in a different magnitude, or even have a different speed of the response, like a factor respo- faster response versus a delayed response, and like all those steps in the pathways are regulatable. Coming to my second point, redundancy can actually come in handy for the immune system, and I mean, like the organismal population at large. Imagine a virus uh, that comes in and it figures out how to block TLR three signaling. Wouldn't that leave us just like completely open to infection? Well, it doesn't, because there's a lot of these redundant mechanisms, and actually, like uh, some of these TLRs are, are on the X chromosome, so uh, you'll see if there's a mutation, it'll be more dominant towards males. But uh, fortunately, you could have, you know, a couple of these things to compensate for your original mutation and still like live a fine life and not die.
1: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Natalie.
0: So, uh, we have discussed a lot of, you know, transcription of inflammatory genes all this time through PRR. Um, can you tell me something specific about these, quote-unquote, inflammatory genes and what they all do? Jet?
1: Yes. Uh, in fact, it is an important question because just the triggering of PRRs is all for, not, for nothing if these genes don't become proteins, which will actually go and target the pathogens. So... Uh, we have already discussed about the antimicrobial peptides. Those are some of the gene products downstream of pattern recognition receptors and they're also a part of the chemical barrier. Next, let's talk about some specific proteins apart from these antimicrobial peptides. First, type 1 interferons, which is in interferon alpha, interferon beta that we have talked about a lot in this episode and there are actually other type 1 interferons. Uh, I think gamma, no not gamma, sorry, omega, and whatnot. Some are found in bovine animals or other species. Anyway, the type one interferon production is generally induced by pattern recognition receptors, and that pattern recognition receptors that activate IRFs. Well, we have talked about IRF3 in this episode, uh, which stands for interferon response factor three, uh, or I think interferon regulatory factor three. I'm drawing yeah, a blank yeah, on yeah. that one. Yeah, regulatory. <laughs> There are other IRFs that exist. There's IRF1, I think three, five, seven, eight, and many of these also induce interferons.
0: Are those IRFs activated by different pathways?
1: Yes, and they're activated under different conditions as well. At the same time, something that you were talking about that they may or may not induce the same magnitude of response, so all of that is different. Coming back to our type 1 interferons, uh, one particular type of uh, dendritic cell called the plasma cytoid dendritic cell is supposed to be a very effective producer of type 1 interferons and not that other cells are not producing it, so I'm just saying that this one particular cell type is producing it in a big amount when it gets triggered by the pattern recognition receptors.
0: So, what is type 1 interferon doing?
1: I'll let you in on a secret. The typhoon interferon, let's say interferon beta, doesn't directly inhibit viral replication, but it itself depends on a signaling pathway to relay the signal inside a cell. And the genes that are transcribed by that signal that's coming from the typhoon interferon, they code for some antiviral proteins.
0: So so interferon's not interferon
1: With the viruses? (laughs) Not directly, (laughs) but indirectly, yes.
0: So what you're saying is that anti-PRRs induce interference and then those interferons induce antiviral genes.
1: Yes, it's not as straightforward as we would think. (laughs) Next, let's talk about some other types of factors. Understand that there is an umbrella term called cytokines and it's just a general term for secreted, soluble proteins that help immune cells to communicate with each other Um, and I'm going to draw a a, make an asterisk on immune cells because actually non-immune cells also use these so Mm -hmm. like right now we are in that debate at what is even an immune cell because every cell is capable of taking up arms under the right condition so this is going to be a vague definition but for all the undergraduates out there let's just call them communication messengers for the immune cells Interferons are a type of cytokines, too Believe it or not There are other cytokines that can just be as important as interferons. Many of these are induced by uh, pattern recognition receptors Let me give in an example of a cytokine This protein called tumor necrosis factor alpha or TNF alpha is one of the first proteins are macrophages produced as soon as they sense a PAMP. In fact, if you are in a lab, you have a cell line available for a macrophage cell line, just hit it with some uh, LPS or some TLR agonist and you'll see the first thing it makes is TNF-alpha. While TNF-alpha has many functions, one of those functions include relaxing the walls of the blood vessels and making the endothelial cells the cells that make up the walls of the blood vessels to spread out. As a result, it allows immune cells to enter in and out of the blood vessels easily, The what that effect called extravasation.
0: Oh, so this allows more immune cells to come and investigate the side of the in- uh, injury or wherever the PAMP has been detected.
1: Yes, that is one of its job. Like TNF-alpha, there are tons of cytokines with diverse functions. There's a category of cytokines that I think we should specifically talk about today. This is, think of them as a subcategory of cytokines called chemokines. Chemokines are small protein chemoattractants, that is, agents that induce cells to move towards a higher concentration of agent. Think of them like breadcrumbs, that the cell receiving, the receiving cell, whichever is responding to this chemokine, can follow these breadcrumbs and try to reach the origin. PRR activation, again, results in secretion of many chemokines, and one of their jobs is to bring in immune cells to the site of injury. Let's think of it this way. You have a skin cell that has got either damaged or maybe it's responding to a bacterial pamp. The skin cell will secrete some chemokines that will bring in immune cells from the rest of the body or from the blood to the site of injury so they can see what's up
0: okay and how is that different from tnf alpha
1: the tnf alpha was making the blood vessels spread out for more immune cells to go in and out easily the chemokines will provide the sense of direction it's like a big alarm bell that will signal to all other immune cells that can receive or can perceive this chemokine to come and check out what's going on to this place
0: i think uh if i may that's actually how Uh, People die of toxic shock. If you get bacteria or something in your blood, um, TNF alpha will will be released and, you know, it's going to start the uh, alarm bells everywhere in your body. It's called a cytokine storm. Mm -hmm. And your blood vessels, all all those cells are going to separate to let the immune cells through, but you're actually going to bleed out into your own body. It's horrible.
1: Yeah, it is horrible. Uh,
0: Anyway, so what else? does our innate immune system have apart from cytokines?
1: Well, apart from cytokines, there are enzymes that the cells like macrophages, again, we're we're putting a lot of emphasis on macrophages because they are one of the first cell type that comes in contact with foreign pathogens. Um, So these enzymes um, are produced by macrophages. An example of this would be INOS or inducible nitric oxide synthase. What INOS does, is it produces nitric oxide, which is damaging to many pathogens. When the macrophage, macrophages phagocytose a pathogen, this nitric oxide helps in killing off the pathogen. There are many other enzymes that the immune system utilizes, and guess what? Again, it's the pattern recognition receptors that induce many of these enzymes, including INOS.
0: So everything you're telling me is branching off the PRRs. It's like they're the gatekeepers and the first thing that sets off an inflammatory cascade. That is
1: exactly what they do. Natalie, I think uh, we'll have to stop here for this episode just because we have have covered a lot and we don't want to overwhelm our audience with all these (laughs) signals. So can you summarize what all we have discussed today?
0: Okay, so uh, today we've been talking about pattern recognition receptors and stuff downstream of them. So we learned that TLRs, like TLR3, utilize the trif dependent pathway to mount an antiviral response. And we learned that there are many types of pattern recognition receptors, like TLRs, CLRs, ALRs, RLRs, and NLRs. They all have overlapping functions in some cases, which helps to provide redundancy in fighting infections. Uh, Lastly, we learned that these PRRs can induce transcription of genes for cytokines and enzymes, all of which help the immune system get rid of pathogens. Some specific cytokines we talked about were TNF-alpha, interferon beta, and a subclass of cytokines called chemokines. So, uh, well, with that, thanks, Jatin, for the wonderful discussion. Uh, For our audience, if you are interested to know more about our science communication endeavors, please check out antibodies.org. You can find our blogs, journal clubs, and podcasts there. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email us at antibodies1 at gmail.com. With that, I am your host, Natalie, signing off until we meet again. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.